This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is about forests, and I'd like to say hello to Andy, who's in the studio with me doing the panel. He's Hi. been really good while I've been away. Hi, Andy. How are Thank you? Thank you. <laughs> He's been really good helping, um, liaising with me while I'm in Sydney, but now I'm in Melbourne today. Look, I really want to talk about trees. Everybody says, well, we have to draw down carbon, and trees store carbon. Trees are also the lungs of the world. Forests cool the land. And today's news from Sydney is that the Lord Mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore, is, I think she's chaining herself to a tree, at least standing, between the bulldozers and a 100-year-old tree called the Langton Fig. The state government wants to clear it away for a light rail and underground rail project. They've already cut down many majestic trees and people are absolutely up in arms about it. The city council modellers show that they could have been preserved. There was another way around it. Meanwhile, in the Amazon, illegal logging is rife. So ranchers can run cattle, soya bean farmers can grow biodiesel, and Amazon crude oil, to the tune of a quarter of a million barrels a day, can be exported to the USA. We'll talk to Louise Boronyak-Vasco from Amazon Watch about how to turn this round. Later, Dr. Hutley from Charles Darwin University will talk to us about mangroves. It's another type of forest that very important for carbon. The same hot water that bleached the corals this year in the Great Barrier Reef also wiped out many mangroves in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And lastly, we'll have Beyond Zero Emissions' own researcher, Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, who will get us up to date on the land-clearing laws which are unleashing more logging just when... The whole world is telling us we should be keeping the carbon, and that means trees, in the soil. I'd like you to keep one fact in mind, listeners, as you're listening to these very, really well-informed speakers. The fact I want you to keep in mind is that five trees will sequester about one tonne of carbon dioxide over 30 years. Australia has a national offset standard which gives you one carbon credit for those five trees. So now let's go to the Amazon with Louise Boronik-Vasco. Welcome, Louise. Hi, Vivian. How are you? I'm very well and very <laughs> pleased to talk to you. Likewise. Look, Amazon Watch is famous for helping to preserve the forest. How did you get involved? Well, um, thank you. I've been lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time in the Amazon. Um, my husband's from Ecuador, so I spent quite a bit of time in the Amazon, in Ecuador, in Brazil, um, Peru and Bolivia, and 
it's an incredibly diverse and beautiful place, just really pulsating with life. And um, when I was there two years ago in Brazil, I kind of made a promise to the forest that I would do everything in my power to protect it. And so um, Amazon Watch Allies was formed in late 2013 after the founder of Amazon Watch, Atossa Soltani, gave a very um, moving presentation at the University of Technology. And she really sort of brought to light the, you know, issues and threats facing the Amazon and the people that call this region in South America home. So we decided to set up our own voluntary group to basically extend the reach of Amazon Watch. And our mission is to connect Australians to the critical global importance of the Amazon and really encourage positive change to conserve and restore, you know, the Amazon's amazing biodiversity and um, really um, protect and promote the cultures of its Indigenous people, you know, as we... We're moving into this climate uncertainty. Um, Indigenous peoples have lived on the, on the land and within the ecological bounds for thousands of years, and mm. we really have a lot to learn um, from them about, um, you know, living within the safe operating space that, that of, of our planet. Well, I have a very fond memory of the Amazon myself. When I was young, I went there. It was 40 years ago, so that shows yes. really dates me. I went there, but this was just when the Trans-Amazonic Highway was being cut through the jungle, yeah. and people yep. were worried about the human rights of Amazon yep. tribal people and the rubber tappers. You know, I belonged to Amnesty at that stage, and the rubber tappers were getting murdered. But... No one was worrying about ecocide. You know, this is really 21st century stuff now. And I'm wondering if the threat of climate change is sort of turbocharging your efforts to preserve these marvellous forests and river systems. Yeah, well, definitely. We just passed a big milestone this year with 4,000 you know, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, and it's never been so high in the whole of human civilization. So we're certainly moving into very uncertain times and Rainforests, along with other um, forests, dry forests and oceans and mangroves, certainly soak up a lot of this carbon dioxide called carbon sinks. So therefore, rainforests play an extremely important role in regulating the Earth's temperature and helping to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Um, with my work at the University of Technology, I work in climate change adaptation and, and really we need to be doing all that we can to keep as many trees as possible standing and, and to keep... Um, as people have said, that the lungs of the earth um, standing. Now, the Amazon rainforest is the world's largest and most biodiverse tropical rainforest, and it basically covers an area of 7.76 million square kilometres, so it's massive. It's um, slightly bigger than Australia, and actually over 60% of that is in Brazil. But unfortunately, since 1978, about 750 square kilometres have been lost, which is about the size of New South Wales through timber, agriculture, cattle, soy, oil extraction, gold mining, and um, more recently, hydro um, electricity. But of course, there is a lot of human rights issues um, at stake here. I mean, hundreds of people have been killed trying to just protect their land from illegal logging and farming, and many more have been subject to threats and violence. And this violence has really been escalating over the years, and just in October this year, there was a, a Brazil environmental official um, killed in the state of Altamira, gunned down basically in front of his family. And it just goes to show that um, just the lawlessness and the length that these, um, I guess, land sort of um, prospectors and land grabbers are going to to um, continue to yet yeah, take up more of the forest from, from their rightful owners. So places like Brazil and um, Peru are actually the most dangerous places in, on earth to be an environmentalist and Amazon Watch are really um, there 
trying to, to get this message across to people and encourage um, people and support Indigenous people's rights in that area to, to their lands and build capacity to protect their lands in various ways. Mm. Well, look, you mentioned biodiversity in yes. the Amazon, and I think that's the picture most people have if they've ever seen a film. It's this wonderful richness of bird life and animal life and plant life, and even down at the leaf letter level, you know, there's, there's yeah. so much going on there. But people have said to me that, well, you know, you could replant it with soya beans or palm oil, you know, you could still have it vegetated in that mm-hmm. thin rainforest soil. And I said, no, I don't think so. I think biodiversity is, is a kind of a protector against climate change, at least plants can sort of adapt with the number of uh, players in the field. Some species may go extinct, but others will then come into play. Can you explain that to the listeners, how, you know, that it needs to be retained intact, not sort of eaten into? Yeah, well, certainly um, um, bigger trees have more of an ability to to soak up that carbon, and um, that's why it's important to keep those big trees intact. And the whole system is incredibly diverse and has evolved over time. And it's, and it's that diversity in nature that um, when shocks or, you know, disease or different things come up that allows the landscape to be resilient. So by um, cutting down all the diverse trees and, and that actually affects all of um, things like nutrient cycling, um, a whole range of processes that are going on behind the scenes. So just simply replacing a rainforest with palm oil, for example, what happens there is the palm oil roots aren't, um, aren't sort of deep enough and so when there's heavy downpours, all that sort of beautiful topsoil that's been cultivated over, uh, over quite a time and that humus just washes away and then the land is basically unproductive and in a few years you won't be able to grow anything there. So that's sort of what happens when palm oil and rainforests cover less than 2% of the world's surface but provide habitat to 50% of the world's known species. And so, um, and the, you know, the Amazon, it houses a third of the Earth's plant and animal um, species and it produces 20% of the world's fresh water. Mm. And so we need these processes going on um, for, for us to continue. And, and even though we're in Australia and we think oh, we're so far away from the Amazon, how is it helping us? Well, actually, as I said, it's producing 20% of the world's fresh water. And just through the, the transpiration of the leaves, it actually produces 50% of the, of the water needs for the, for the entire rainforest itself. And so as we're sort of cutting down more and more of it, um, that ability, that sort of rain-producing ability is decreasing and we're seeing a very worrying drying trend in the Amazon. 2005 was a particularly bad year. And um, river levels dropped by 12 metres, you know, stranding a lot of Indigenous people that need those rivers to, to move along, to move goods and themselves along the river. So um, it's certainly, yeah, worrying that um, we're sort of moving into um, very unknown territories oh. and do need to keep um, the Amazon intact as it is. Yes. Well, look, I think the main problem I've found over the years doing a program about climate action is it's just too big for people to understand. As you say, in Australia, no one can see how the Amazon could possibly affect them. But there are big forces, and we talk about, scientists talk about tipping points, and apparently there are about four major Mm -hmm. tipping points that could disrupt the whole global climate system. And three of them we can't do much about. For example, we can't stop the West Antarctic ice 
ice shelf just close to Australia really yeah. breaking up. We can't, you can't stop that. It's um, irreversible, not reversible. But leaving the Amazon alone, just leaving it alone with its huge biodiversity is a sort of imaginable, even though we know all the commercial forces and all the people living there. But it is imaginable. You can imagine putting laws into place and controlling that and slowing that and actually eventually guarding it as what it is, you know, this biodiversity sort of bank. And I think many people say that giving land rights to the local people so that they can manage that forest is key to its survival. How would this work? Yeah, well, there's certainly a key correlation between Indigenous protected areas and forests remaining intact. So where Indigenous people's land is, that's basically where deforestation stops. And... um, There's a lot of the World Resources Institute just um, put out a report not long ago just really um, quantifying the benefits of um, giving, you know, making a whole upholding um, people's rights to be those forest guardians. And since um, for almost two decades, Amazon Watch has basically helped to build this global movement of forest guardians using creative and effective strategies to confront these urgent threats. So um, it's very, very important and it's the cheapest way possible that we can mitigate mitigate carbon. You know, we're, we're investigating all kinds of things like, you know, um, you know, carb, you know, sequestering carbon and all these sorts of things and pumping it underground where actually if we um, uphold Indigenous people's rights, we can halt this deforestation and we can um, continue to operate the planet in a safe operating space. Okay. So it's extremely important. Okay, well, now let's talk about oil. I'm sorry to be racing you through it, but we've got three guests tonight. And there was an international (laughs) project in Ecuador to, uh, you know, to pay the Ecuadorian government to keep the Amazon oil in the ground. I think Norway was very big. There was a fund, but apparently they didn't get anything like the money they were hoping to get to pay Ecuador to keep their oil beneath the jungle. And now I hear that the Yasuni people, indigenous people, are being displaced as crude oil is exported to the USA and it's up to something like a quarter of a million barrels of Amazon crude oil per day being processed in America. How will this affect the climate? Uh, You know, it's really difficult to say, but certainly, I mean, Amazon Watch have a campaign about keeping all oil in the ground and... um, yeah, you know, it seems when President Correa came into power in 2007 and had this Yasuni initiative, which was basically to um, encourage governments from around the world to pay into a fund to, um, to, to have that money for Ecuador to not um, cut down the Yasuni, which has um, been lauded as the most biodiverse area on the planet. People say that when you go to that national park in an hour, people see more diversity of species than they see in their whole lifetime just by being in the park for an hour. Mm. And so it's, um, yeah, so President Correa did not get as much money as he wanted and so now um, the oil concessions have been sold off to a lot of Chinese companies and um, this year has seen 200 oil wells um, sunk in in, in different areas of the park Mm. uh, um, which will produce, when they're operating, about 920 million barrels of oil and of course, we all know that burning that oil, um, getting it out and burning that oil is, is contributing to, to dangerous climate change. And so, I, I mean, it, yeah, it's hard to say for sure, but of course, it's going to have an impact. And, you know, we're already seeing the impact from um, increased climate variability and um, extreme events in Australia with more prolonged droughts, changing um, water cycles. 
you know, more intense bushfire seasons and more intense storms. So we certainly um, can't afford to just keep doing this old method. We really need to transition to clean energy fuels yeah. to do everything to keep um, keep oil in the ground to protect Indigenous people's oh. rights to keep all of those um, areas of important carbon sinks um, conserved uh, and protected. Yeah, keep doing At a time, yeah, I mean, it's never been more important than now. So oh. we all need to put pressure on our own government um, to do that. And certainly with the land clearing laws being introduced into New South Wales, it's very worrying. Mm. And, um, yeah, you also mentioned the trees earlier being cut down for the light rail. We yeah. certainly had a big active role in... in, in I mean, they were my street trees that were cut down, so it was absolutely devastating. And I thought, how am I going to protect the forest in the Amazon when I can't protect my oh, own street trees? I've so, been thinking that too. But yeah. look, it's clearly a very complex problem, and it's yeah. a very volatile time in history. You know, this big problem, you, you could almost say human beings have never had to confront it, really, and it's all these interlocking yeah. things. But with the Amazon stretching over nine countries and many tribal areas and the threat is also from many different companies who are making a huge profit, who are, you know, going to make short-term profit, even that Amazon crude oil. I'm sure they're pumping out as fast as they can until, you know, the regulation will step in. Meanwhile, we're having, you know, a conference in Morocco about climate change right now. The option of dedicating the Amazon basin as a biodiversity bank or a carbon sink, it just doesn't sound likely to us living this. But is that what you think really, is that the demand, you know, keep it intact as a biodiversity bank? Well, I mean, unfortunately, yeah, I mean, that was the, the thinking that Korea had and, you know, we were all really encouraged by that. But when he launched that campaign, unfortunately, the next year was a global financial crisis and um, I guess, yeah, things things didn't go to plan. But it's difficult because... I mean, certainly the Ecuadorian government feels that, um, you know, in the past there's been oil exploration and it's really um, caused a lot of damage. Um, I don't know if you know about the Chevron court case. Mm, and so mm, they feel yeah. that drilling for Yasuni is a way that they can get themselves clean up this mess and also get out of poverty. Um, you know, Ecuador's not a, not a rich country. So it, it's just unfortunate that we um, always have to have this trade-off between the economy and the environment where a lot of people see that those things are um, hugely interconnected systems and without the health of the environment, we won't have healthy communities and we won't have an economy. So mm. unfortunately, we're still stuck in this really, really neoliberal <laughs> way of thinking. And mm, Not um, for long. Let's hope not for long. Yeah, let's hope not for long. But um, we do need to, yeah, encourage the government to, to, to keep those protections up as much as possible yeah. um, and also encourage them and, and find ways to um, transfer that knowledge and find ways within within those um, countries to, to transition to cleaner energy. And, you know, Brazil... Okay. We're going to have to finish there, Louise. I'm sorry. This yeah. is really... Um, I've got the no, next guest thank waiting. You. But thank you, you so much. <laughs> listeners, you can look up Amazon Watch and I think that's the best way to get involved with their campaigns, that one about yeah. keeping so the... Amazon Watch allies and you will, you will find us. We, we've got yep. a Facebook page and also a website. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you, and thank you for talking to the listeners. So now we're going to have a little um, sound bite, listeners, and then we're going on to our next speaker about mangroves.
You're listening to 3CR Radio. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. We're talking about forests tonight. I hope that got your blood boiling with the Amazon speaker. Her name was Louise Boronyak Vasco from UTS in Sydney. But now we're going to Darwin. The Queensland and Northern Territory coastline has seen the death of 10,000 hectares of mangroves at a time of the great coral bleaching in 2016, so just earlier this year. And so I invited Dr Lindsay Hutley to speak to us from Darwin. He's a plant physiologist at Charles Darwin University and his recent work has focused on quantifying fluxes of carbon, water and energy from ecosystems such as mangroves. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, Vivian. How are you? Good to talk to you. Good, thank you. I'm well. Tell us what pushed Australian mangroves past their tolerance level in 2016. That's an extremely good question. Look, we're not exactly sure, to be frank. But um, we can have a pretty good guess. So it's a it's an area along the southern coastline of the Gulf of Carpentaria. So we're in the wet, dry tropics where we have very seasonal climate. Well, it's hot all year, but it's either hot and wet or hot and dry. And um, in the last few years, we think it's pretty much been hot and not very wet. So we are thinking this may be a climate change event. When, uh, as I said, we're unsure, but uh, it's spread over a thousand kilometres, which suggests it's probably not. A pollution event or you know one one possibility was it some some sort of spillage or emission or a yeah. heavy metal contaminant but none mm. of that seems to make any sense there's no evidence of that from anywhere it's a pretty remote part of australia it's a very pristine in coastline actually mm. um so you're left with the only possibility being a, a, some sort of climate event and as you and you very nice introduction there you mentioned the coral bleaching we've seen the last of the 15 and 16 and we've also seen a little bit of quite amazing coral bleaching in the Northern Territory, which is not noted for you know, huge, huge coralline systems, but we do have coral reefs, and we're even here we're seeing some bleaching. And, of course, we've got things like uh, Western Australian kelp forests have been in retreat for some years as well. So um, we are sus- suspicious this is a, a climate-driven event. Well, can you just tell us a little bit about coastal mangrove forests? Why do we mm. need them? Well, I suppose um, they're an amazing plants. They, they kind of live in the ocean, which is kind of breaking all the rules. Mm-hmm. If you're a plant, you've evolved in the in the land. You've, it's a land-based life form, effectively. They're now evolved to live in salt water. So they, they cop you know, seawater um, so they can withstand the salinity of that. Uh, and they're tropical as well, although we do have mangroves in Australia spread right down into southern New South Wales, a little bit in Victoria. If your Melbourne-based listeners are interested, there's some uh, mangroves in Mornington Peninsula. So they're some of the most southern mangroves in the world, actually, in Victoria. And uh, so they live in the ocean. Um, They provide um, a a great sort of buffer between the land and the ocean. And so certainly in in the tropics, they are um, there's good evidence from, say, the um, Ache event where we saw um, tsunamis, areas with mangroves that were intact along their coastline were, were protected significantly more than areas where the mangroves had been removed or denuded. So they have this sort of coastal protective mechanism. So with They're sea level rise, does that mean for you know countries like Bangladesh mm. where the sea level rise is really threatening quite soon, yep. is that protective there? Would you think that would be... 
important for them, mangroves? I would think it would, yeah. So mangroves are in a bit of an arms race, if you like, with sea level rise. So they are adapted mangroves. You know, there's 30 to 50 tree species of mangroves occur around the world. They're all adapted to exist in different uh, parts of the sort of tidal cycle. So some can cope with long periods of inundation and some can, can cope with uh, less inundation. So there's a sort of a zonation, if you like, as mm. we move from the the high watermark or even low watermark to the sort of through a mangrove forest, you get this distinct zonation. And it's mostly driven by uh, the period of time in which they can be inundated by salt water. And so there's a... As we increase sea level rise, sea level rises, clearly that's going to have an, inflect, an impact or an influence on the distribution of mangroves. Um, so, yeah, they have a protective role. And, of course, as most people know, uh, everyone knows, they're a great nursery for fish. Uh, species breeding is critical. Uh, mud crabs, you know, in this part of the world, it, all of that occurs in mangroves. So mm. it's, it's sort of stabilizing coastlines, fish nurseries, and more recently, in the last 10, 20 years, we've now worked out that they are extraordinary uh, ecosystems in terms of sequestering carbon. Your previous speaker, Louise, was talking about the role yeah. of rainforest. We're going to get onto that in a minute, the carbon, because yeah. I, I, I have a sort of feeling like someone who's discovered a gold mine to discover that they are good at sequestering carbon. <laughs> we have, yeah. Carbon well, it's a newish discovery, in a, in a sense. Yeah. But before we get to that, I heard that mm. you're telling us that mangroves are good at adaptation. Just... Can you tell me, you've said these um, ones in the northern uh, waters mm. have died back, but are they, yeah. are they going to sprout again like trees after a bushfire? We would is it worthwhile so, plant, yeah. replanting them up there? Um, yes, there's lots, of, there's lots of planting activity around the world to bring mangroves back. People have worked out in areas, particularly in the tropical developing countries where they've been removed. Um, for, for agriculture, so there's a lot of removal of mangroves for agriculture. Well, people have worked out now actually they have a very important role with nearshore fisheries, so now there's a lot of effort to bring them back. Um, and that involves in some areas planting, direct planting, which, which can be successful, uh, can also be uh, unsuccessful. Um, so yeah, they're, they're extremely adaptive and they're well adapted to, to, to that sort of nearshore existence. Yeah. Well look, we heard just before you a person talking about the Amazon and preserving mm. it and she said that it depends very much on indigenous people being given land rights there and the job yep. of monitoring those pristine forests mm -hmm. could be given to those people who actually live there. And I wondered if this is happening in our coastal mangroves, especially up where you are in sort of remote areas. Mm. We're fortunate. In fact, our mangrove systems are in pretty good shape, um, which is there's, there's been, you know, in Queensland there was disturbance of mangrove systems in the, say, the 70s, 60s. A lot of them were, were cleared for coastal development, but all that's stopped now. Um, so they're in, they're protected, they're in, in reasonable shape. So, which is also why we think this event in the Gulf may be a climate change uh, yeah. scenario where um, there's been very little anthropogenic disturbance along that coastline, almost nothing um, uh, at all. So there's, they're, they're, they really have been influenced by, we think, high air temperatures, high sea surface temperatures, and we've had three or four quite below average uh, wet seasons. So the monsoonal influence has reduced which is all part of our natural climate variability. But we're just interested in the fact that uh, we suspect there's been a, an extraordinary coupling of reduced rainfall, high, high, sea, sea, high sea surface temperatures, and 
and very high air temperatures, the Gulf region copped uh, some serious heat waves in 2015, mm-hmm. again in 16, and uh, all of these events are potentially quite extraordinary. So we're interested in looking at the sort of the statistics. How unique was this event that we've just seen that's laid waste to many hundreds of kilometres of mangroves? Have mm-hmm. we seen similar events in the last 50 years mm-hmm. or even even earlier than that. So we'll look at the climate records for the region, we'll, we'll back project those perhaps a hundred years and just ask ourselves, well, was this set of climate events that we saw unique or is it, you know, completely, we're in completely uncharted territory? Certainly no one who's been watching mangroves in North Australia has seen anything like this. It's quite an extraordinary event, you know, really quite catastrophic event in terms of the ecology and the stability of that coastline, not to mention the fisheries. The Gulf is a very large fishery, yeah. important for commercial through to Indigenous people who use mm. that, that coastline. Well, could we now shift to the world picture for mangroves? Mm. I know a huge number of mangroves around the world have been removed for fish farming and other developments. And yep. I thought given the, the carbon sequestering potential, you know, they, they are so mm. rich in sequestering carbon and the yep. coastal preservation that you've talked about, do you think they are on the world's agenda for replanting and protection? Certainly, I think since 2009, there was a United Nations Environment Program declaration that mangroves could, mangrove forests could be included in the, the sort of red, red schemes, these reduced emissions deforestation schemes. In other words, where you would engineer a, a, a program where, where people would be funded to, to not clear forests. And we've seen that Louise will be an expert in this, I would think, the previous speaker, where management has come in and said, well, we, we, don't, we, we believe this, this forest is worth more to us uh, standing and providing the ecosystem services such as clean air, clean water, carbon sequestration, etc. We value that more than we value having you clear it. So this scheme is now... Available to be used or or implemented in mangrove forests, which is which is in terms of the sort of governance and policy quite a breakthrough. So our job is to make sure that we can then support local communities uh, to actually potentially uh, design programs to do just that. So can we see mangrove restoration? as an, effectively an, a community-based activity and even an alternative economic um, and a livelihood? Can we generate funding for local communities to protect their mangroves? So local communities such as those maybe living across the, the tropics, you know, developing countries in the tropics, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand in particular. Indonesia has cleared 40% of its mangroves in the last 40 years, mostly for aquaculture. A lot of these aquacultural systems are perhaps not well managed. They become unproductive and uh, they become abandoned. People are now saying, well, why don't we convert them back to mangrove systems? There perhaps is funding that can be uh, attracted to to cover costs and also um, making sure we understand, for example, carbon carbon sequestration because a restoring or a mangrove that's undergoing a rehabilitation program or is regrowing rapidly accumulates carbon. And so mangrove forests have some of the highest carbon densities uh, of any ecosystem in, in the world, including rainforest. So when I'm, what I mean there is basically if you took a square hectare of, um, say, mangrove mud and mangrove forest and you measured the carbon stored within 
the sediment and the forest, you would actually have more carbon per hectare than you might have for, for many tropical forests of the world. They're really amazing. So they basically extract the CO2 from the atmosphere, store that carbon in their biomass, but they're also pushing it into the soil. And because mangroves uh, grow in this sort of aquatic um, anoxic environment, in other words, they're, 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 water, they're waterlogged, they're saturated, a lot of that carbon is, is sort of gets into this sediment, but it doesn't come back out. And so it's a bit like a, a carbon pump where yeah. the forest is pushing carbon from the atmosphere, storing it in its leaves, its stems, and its roots, and the exudate, all of that ends up stored in the sediment. So they are very rich carbon sediments in mangrove forests, and that's the mechanism which well, they can trap or sequester significant amounts of carbon. Well, that's all new to me. I'm really glad you've explained that so well. Mm. Um, I read a book once called The Hungry Tide by Amitav yeah. Ghosh, and listeners might know this writer. He's a marvellous mm. Indian writer. It's set in the Sundaban mangrove forests at the mouth of the yep. Ganges River, and they're the most carbon-rich forests in the tropics, apparently, and they protect against tsunamis and cyclones and are being pushed back by these fisheries. And... Um, I wonder, uh, they said that in that the uh, local people were, were taking the man out of mangroves because they thought they'd give the money to women to go around in their boats to sort of monitor the mangroves and protect them and make sure people weren't illegally cutting them down and using them for mm. firewood. And I thought uh, there need to be lot, there are these initiatives. Do you see a positive trend in World Climate Adaptation Fund, you know, these green funds, to protect those lands from sea level rise and sea temperature rise? Yeah, I think there's a lot of activity on, on, on if, if listeners did a quick Google search of something called blue carbon, that's a sort of a trendy buzzword that is, is a term that encompasses this, this fervent interest now in, in managing coastal ecosystems more effectively because these are, these are the systems that are going to be the front line in terms of uh, dealing with climate change as sea level rises. Many, many hundreds of millions of people live on low-lying coastal, coastal ecosystems in the tropics around the world, uh, rely on the ocean, rely on mangroves for their livelihoods. But these, these systems are changing rapidly due to climate change. We know this. Indonesia, again, is a very good example where we have some of the highest rates of sea level rise in the world occurring across the Indonesian archipelago. Um, mangroves play, play a vital role in stabilising these, these uh, very dynamic coastlines that we're seeing. And even in North Australia, we can see uh, mangroves as sea level rise. There's good evidence that suggests mangroves are actually growing inland further as the sea rises. They're pushing salt water mm. to freshwater river iron systems that are now salinising. But mangroves are following behind uh, this process. And in effect, they're going to be able to stabilise some of these sort of systems that you might think with sea level rise become quite unstable. Yeah. When I mean unstable, uh, that's, that's sort of erosion is occurring, sedimentation rates uh, un, you know, dynamic, hard to predict, whereas mangroves can grow in this sort of uh, brackish waters and they will stabilise those, those those land systems, those sea land systems that, uh, that are going to now evolve. And, and mangroves are doing this extremely rapidly, so they're very dynamic. Well, in a way, this is a really good news story that you've told us how clever the mangroves are, even though they're threatened. Mm. And I just wonder, we have another guest coming up after to talk about land clearing in Australia. And I wonder, is there any last message you have for our listeners about how to get involved? I don't know if there are any organisations um, that they might like to get involved with. Uh, there are. There's, there's, <coughs> well, there's some, there's some, I mean, the 
great way of tracking mangrove loss or gain or any forest for that matter is via satellites, remote sensing, and they're becoming more and more powerful remote sensing. There's a thing called the Global Forest Watch uh, program, which is, you can hit that on, online, globalforestwatch.org, mm-hmm. one word, and that tracks land use change clearing around the planet, basically. So that's, it's, you, can, you can track areas from 2001 to, well, it's probably ongoing. They also have quite a good uh, mangrove uh, map where mangroves occur globally. Um, that's quite a nice database to sort of have a look at land cover, land cover change, conservation, land use. Uh, all of this is derived from satellite imagery. Close to home in in Australia, we have an an outfit, a community group, I guess they, they would call themselves Mangrove Watch, who is a group that fosters information, conservation uh, of, of Australia's mangroves. They're based at, uh, in North Queensland in Cairns. James Cook University is heavily involved, uh, who sponsor them. Caring for Country, University of Queensland also involved. Now, Mangrove Watch, I would recommend. Again, I've got a great website, uh, mangrovewatch.org.au, and you can get a stack of information about just what are mangroves, where are they, what are the threats, what countries do mangroves occur in. I mean, 75% of the world's mangroves occur in 15 or less countries. So, you know, there's, 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 there's hope there for conservation. Yeah. And the message about the role of mangroves in terms of coastal stabilisation, but also fostering and maintaining fish fisheries is really mm. Getting, getting, getting home. Governments are taking notice of that, and uh, you know, the Indonesian government is a good example where they've got the message. I think, and they realise things have to change. Thank you for talking to us. I think we we did a lot on the Great Barrier Reef bleaching. All the media did that, and I yep. think the mangroves is just as important a story. So thank you very much for talking to us today, and perhaps we'll talk My to pleasure. you another time. So that was um, Dr. Lindsay Hutley from Charles Darwin University, and he's an expert on mangroves. We'll just have time for a little bit of music, and then we're going to speak to Gerard Wedderburn-Bishop. There's a cold rain on the autumn wind, a brother murdered in Sydney town. Mark, my brother, and I suppose they go covering his home, tending down. We say, oh, 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 tending down. Sad rivers of tears to hundred years in the river of fear, tending down. They took him out of point blank range in his home with his small young son. Shot him dead in his marble bed with a pump action 12 gauge shotgun. Fatherless child, even wife, a black fugitive on the run. On the run, two centuries from oppression's loaded guns. We say, oh, 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 Gunning down. Sad rivers and tears to hundred years in the Terrorists dressed in uniform under the protection of their law. Terrorized blacks and dawns of fear that come smashing through your door. You're not safe outside on Freedom Street, you're not safe inside the camp. There's shotguns and there's stun guys, the license to drop you where you stand. We say, whoa. Down. 
Welcome back, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Our last guest on forests is Gerard Wedderburn Bishop. He is a Beyond Zero Emissions researcher. He contributed to the BZE Land Management Report. So welcome, Gerard. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thanks, Gerard, for talking to us today. Can you tell us about your experience with deforestation? Sure, yeah. Um, As you said, I worked on the Beyond Zero Emissions Land Use Report. Uh, Before that, for 20-odd years, I was uh, working with the Queensland State Government monitoring deforestation across that state. So I have a pretty good uh, background in deforestation. Um, Yeah, so um, what would you like me to talk about? Well, you know, how extensive was it back in those 20 years and, and... What's happened since? Because now, it's, I, I think even 20 years ago, or certainly 30 years ago, climate change wasn't so much of an issue on people's minds, but now we're starting to realise that those forests are valuable and in, very important for us to maintain the climate stability. Yes, yes absolutely. So, yeah, the, the uh, BZD land use plan found that the, the best and the most effective and the cheapest way to uh, combat land use emissions was to reduce uh, deforestation. In fact, we, we got quite a surprise when we did the, the land use plan because um, we found that um, the, the greatest agricultural emission in Australia uh, using standard 100-year accounting is actually deforestation. Um, and now, still, Australia has uh, the highest deforestation rates in any developed country. So we were quite quite surprised at that, um, and it's going back gangbusters. The, the story of deforestation in Australia is is uh, quite an interesting one. We um, we perfected the use of the two bulldozers with the chain between mm. uh, tree pulling, as they call it. Mm. Uh, they're actually now using that in the south of Brazil, the Cerrado, um, because it's so effective at uh, clearing open woodland. Uh, which we have a lot of. Um, yeah, so the deforestation story in Australia is still a very sad one. We've, we've still got the highest deforestation of, uh, rate of any developed country. And it's also an alarming one, and it should be, to the federal government because uh, the, they were able, they were, uh, able to uh, uh, introduce what they call the uh, in the Kyoto Agreement, yeah. uh, the Australia Clause. Oh, that's um, right. They got a special deal. Yeah, the special deal was that if we reduce deforestation, it will offset all the industrial and 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 uh, uh, yeah. fossil fuel emissions. <laughs> so they were sort of pinning their hopes to that. But the fact is that uh, when the Campbell Newman government got in in Queensland and eased up those uh, tree clearing laws. Um, the, the, the deforestation rate tripled back to 300,000 hectares mm. per year. It's just rapacious. Look, yeah. I look, tonight, Jared, we've been talking about tropical forests in the Amazon and mangrove forests around the world, and it's a huge battle in all of those places to preserve trees against the competition for food, food and fuel, you know, including biofuel. And yes. I wonder, what are the competing interest, interests in Australia? Why are we the highest land clearing? Wouldn't we have already cleared enough land for agriculture? Why, why is there this ravenous hunger for more cleared yeah. land? Yeah, actually, it's a, it's a really interesting issue, and we delved into this in the BZE land use plan at quite depth. 
and uh, it's it's pretty clear that um, more than ninety percent of tr- of Australia's deforestation is for beef production. Um, so it's that industry that uh, is the the biggest cause by far of, of any for deforestation. So when we look at that, we've got a We've got to look at the drivers, look at the industry, look at the government support, look at the, the reasons these farmers are doing it. And and we also need to look at the results of that. And it's pretty clear that uh, deforestation, at least regionally, uh, increase, increases uh, temperatures and evaporation and so on. But the, the yeah, deforestation is... I think in time we will begin to see trees as treasures, uh, as as well as mangroves. I I think what will happen is when the climate chaos continues to a point where we eventually wake up, we'll realise that um, we don't have any uh, geoengineering quick fix that can save us, but what we do have is we have trees, and they're these wonderful beasts that suck down the, the CO2 and store it. And we realise that deforestation, you know, we have massive tree planting programs across Australia, but they're pale in comparison with the deforestation that's going on. And and with all our best intentions to reforest, we've got these deforestation that's going gangbusters. That's right. Well, look, at the federal level, I just read that uh, our government has paid out over $1 billion recently in incentives to farmers to plant trees or just to not clear their land using the Emissions Reduction Fund. I think a lot of people think the Emissions Reduction Fund was given to, you know, industry to stop emitting, but it's really been just given to farmers, a billion dollars. Meanwhile, other farmers, you know, under these relaxed laws that you talked about, can undermine this good work with, um, you know, the new state clearing laws, making it just okay for it. And the whole scheme is used as an offset to allow coal-fired power and gas plants to go on emitting. And I want to know, what do you think? You must have been thinking about this quite a few years now. What is a really fair dinkum way of rapidly increasing the net carbon stored in the soil and a net reduction in emissions? You've got to do both things, not offset one from the other. Exactly. Um, yeah, the the emissions reduction fund is is an interesting one. It, it's it, the carbon farming initiative is part of that. Um, most of that money has actually gone into capturing methane at, at landfill sites. It, it hasn't so much, and also controlling burning in the north. Um, not a huge amount of it yet has gone into tree planting. Um, but th- there's a mindset in the bush that is supported by the politicians because they want those votes, that the land is belongs to the farmers and they should be able to do what they please to clear it to make way for um, grazing pastures. Now, that in, in the not-so-distant past, that was actually encouraged by government. In fact, you lost the lease on your land if you didn't clear the land. So, you know, this mindset... And I've had arguments in country pubs uh, right across Queensland. Uh, That uh, mindset needs to change. And and I think it will only change when we're hitting our heads against the brick wall (laughs) so much that our ears pop out. And our ears will pop out when we realise that this this is a drastic situation. I mean, if you look at the last CSIRO projection, 
um, the, the 2016 State of the Climate Report, they've put out maps showing the warming tendencies for Australia up to 2090, which is only, you know, 60, 75 years away. And that is scary. I mean, it shows that there's going to be three to uh, five degrees of warming uh, across the middle of the state and about the same on the on the coast, hmm. which is uh, alarming. I mean, that, that will... Well, it's unlivable, isn't it? It's for most animals yeah. and a lot of us. It's going to be unlivable, certainly yeah, for all those exactly. cattle that are trying to make a living on the land there. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the, the extreme heat events are going to increase in duration, frequency and intensity. Mm. And the fire weather, you know, when, the, when you get the hot, dry winds for a period and one spark and bang it goes, they're going to increase across large parts of Australia. So that that's... You know, extremely worrying. Yeah. The rainfall's gone down in the southwest of Australia, and the rainfall in um, April, October growing season in the continental southeast has gone down 11%. Mm. So, you know, the those things impact agriculture. But the, the, the pollies see, see this as if you touch anything in the bush, and this is what's going on in New South Wales now with these debate over whether we should give the, the control of tree clearing back to the farmers or not, that that's um, raging, and it and it's raging because the politicians don't want to touch the farmers because of the votes. And the fact is that, as we saw in Queensland, when you give control of the, when you give this so-called self-assessment back to the farmers, the farmers just clear like crazy because they think it's their right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the fact is that you look at Queensland, for example, a lot of the clearing in recent years has been in the Burdekin and Fitzroy catchments. Now, those two catchments feed onto the Southern Barrier Reef and they know that the reef, there's a reef report every year and they know that the biggest pollutant on the reef, on the reef is the fine sediment, the biggest killer. It's mm. not off the sugar cane, mm. it's off the grazing lands. And they, they know this, they, they detail it quite exactly. They just paid $9 million uh, up in the far north to buy a cattle property because it was so degraded that, it, that the runoff was just killing the pristine north. Mm. <laughs> it's sort of history now because it's all bleached. But, um, you know, the, no one pays for that killing of the barrier reef and it's coming off grazing lands. And it's because they don't protect the waterways. They don't, keep, they don't have the money to fence off these things to keep the cattle off them. Well, now, I think we need a correction here because, you know, I, I know there's the hostility among farmers and the New South Wales Farmers Association, for example, complaining about red tape and what a nightmare the laws are and all of that. But there was one man actually killed, a, you know, a, a farmer called Ian Turnbull, yeah. shot an officer dead and the environment officer's name was Glenn Turner. I just looked it up today because I remember that because he was just going to that man's property to say you've been illegally logging your property and the guy just shot him. So I know there's that hostility, but on the other hand, I do a lot of stories with farmers and city activists who've now got together and it's such a precious thing because they've got together over locking the gates against the coal and the coal seam gas and they're talking to each other and me, I'm a city slicker, but you know, I just meet all these country people and and we have so much in common with that cry of, you know, united we stand, protect our water, protect our land. It's, It's just a wonderful thing to have yeah. these two groups of people s- supporting each other and, and talking to each other yeah. and I think we've united in that way and I would like a, a correction now in th- 
this attitude to the land, I think it has to come from the top. What do you think? You know, like totally agree with you. Mm. Totally agree. I mean, we should celebrate our farmers. They're, they're, they're heroes. They feed us, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, they're wonderful. But, but the attitude towards trees is one that needs correction. Yeah. It really does. And it's, you know, that guy who, who shot the, the clearing mm. inspector, mm. I mean, he wasn't a nutter. He's been a farmer all his life. Mm. He's just got so enraged that that the government can stop him from doing what he wants on his land, yeah. and that that that's a real stumbling block that we need to get over. Yeah. But but I might just say too that um, it it also depends on on the demand. See, farmers are incredibly resilient; they'll they'll change their production depending on demand. And if people move away from um, beef, for example then we won't have the pressure on the land, on the barrier reef, on the climate, on the deforestation like we, we used to. I mean, mm. that, that to me is um, the, the real um, solution. And, you know, when you, when you look at uh, figures like uh, the, the, the highest return uh, on farming in Australia is actually um, uh, pulses, lentils and <laughs> chickpeas and things like that. Yeah. It's pretty. It's it, it's clear that um, you know there are alternatives. There are a lot of alternatives yeah. on the rangelands. Maybe not, but maybe we can go to carbon farming. Maybe some of that you know billion dollars government spending can actually go to you know protecting trees or or fencing off waterways or or uh, you know stopping farmers from clearing trees yeah. because you know there's there's a big flurry of activity at the moment there's a big push to develop northern australia and basically the biggest development we can do is moored beef farming oh. and and so that's pushing the farmers to you know can, uh, can uh, put their properties together buy off the farm there's a thing called the fence line effect which you see Again and again, you, when you're travelling through the countryside, on one side you've got knee-high grass, and on the other side it's bare. And it's it's because one's a family farmer and one's the uh, uh, pastoral corporation. Yeah. And the reason is because they flog the land. Dollars. It's purely dollars that yeah. they're driven by. And then they get uh, funding when they when there's none left. They get drought relief assistance to put diesel to to take their mm. trucks and truck the cattle up to say uh, a Cape York. Uh, property that still has a bit of grass. It's not as good, but there's still something there. Gerard, we'll have to finish there. I love talking to you. I could talk to you all night, but really, I'm sorry (laughs) you've told us all you know about lately, and I'm sure we'll come back to you yet again to to continue this conversation. But thank you very much for tonight's contribution. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was Gerard Wedderburn, Bishop listeners, and I'm sorry we've run very close to the wind tonight, and Andy's giving me all sorts of signals too. uh, Close. You finished up. We have to thank everybody. First of all, thanks to the team, Teddy, Roger, Jody, and Andy on the panel, and our guests, Louise Boronyak Vasco from Amazon Watch. You can look up Amazon Watch. Dr. Lindsay Hartley from CDU, and I think he told us about Mangrove Watch. And Gerard Wedderburn, Bishop, a BZE researcher, and you can look up the Beyond Zero Emissions Land Use plan, which is a document that he contributed to. My name is Vivian Langford. Now I've got some advertising. There's a film on tomorrow in Melbourne at uh, 6.30pm, Tuesday the 15th of November. It's at Acme. I have one spare ticket to give away. So listeners, if you can ring me in the next 
half hour on 94198377. I'm going to ask Stephen to go and step outside and answer the phone if anyone rings. So if you ring 94198377, Stephen's rushing out there now, you can have that free ticket to tomorrow night's film. It's called Years of Living Dangerously. It's not the one about Indonesia. It's called Years of Living Dangerously. It's about climate change and it was made by National Geographic. So um, there's also Friends of the Earth Melbourne calling for a ban on new coal mines. Could you look up Friends of the Earth Melbourne? Uh, you could contact Amazon Watch, Greenpeace and uh, Rainforest Action Groups if you've been moved by what we've been talking about tonight about trees. I've also had a message from Jody, who's part of our team on just a roundup of exciting news, you know, to end on a positive note. In Morocco, they're having the COP22 uh, um, you know, following on the Paris Agreement, the countries that have signed that and all sorts of people, including a lot of business, is going to be in Morocco at Marrakesh. And this um, Morocco is apparently a very good example of a country that's accelerated towards the clean energy transition. They've got massive um, wind and solar farms being built there. And it's a very fitting thing, therefore, that in Morocco tomorrow they're hosting an event that brings together nations and states and even companies that have accomplished or are targeting 100% renewable energy. Now, obviously, our federal government can't be there, but the ACT government is going to be at that very exclusive little group meeting. Um, in Morocco, and the ACT's new climate change minister, Shane Rattenbury, will be there to represent ACT because they are hitting 100% renewable energy. He'll be sitting next to the likes of Mary Robinson, who's a hero of mine. She used to be the president of Ireland. Now she has a foundation called For, uh, Climate Justice. So he, uh, Shane Rattenbury from Australia will be rubbing shoulders with people who are really, you know, running ahead, being progressive on this, just in this depressing time when we've had a change of government in America. And, you know, people are thinking, what do we do now? Well, we fight and we get intelligent about it. We get educated. I think listening to this program is good. If you listen in, you, you'll hear the best that I can bring to you. But uh, be proud that the ACT is going to be there in Morocco representing us. Beyond Zero Emissions is also a partner in the group there are called the Global 100% Campaign, and they are organising that event. Um, I think we're finishing just about on time. I've thanked everybody. Please stay tuned for Save Albert Park and tune in next week, listeners, where I'm going to have one um, a, a show about Morocco. I'm going to talk to Christine Milne, and I'm going to talk to someone from Arena called Martin Wilders, and then I'm also going to have some child leaders. I'm going to have some very young people, primary school children, who I think are leading us in their imaginative approach to the future, the climate-changed future. Thank you for listening. Good night.